evidence and answers. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each year, Pat hosts an apologetics conference located in beautiful Hawaii. Today, we are continuing our broadcasts taken from the 2018 Apologetics Conference. We will be listening to one of our question and answer sessions. You'll find this broadcast extremely interesting as our panel of guest speakers will be providing biblical answers to some very tough questions taken from our attendees of the conference. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, on to today's broadcast. God is sovereign and all-powerful. Here's the question, why allow evil to exist? My turn. <laughs> Here's the answer. I don't know. <laughs> this question is phrased in a very particular way. Usually the question about the problem of evil has to do with an apparent contradiction. This isn't the way this is worded. It's a question about why God allowed evil. Now, he says sovereign and powerful. That sounds like the other question, but that doesn't relate to the issue of why. So there's like a mixture of two questions here, all right? And so if I were actually talking to this person, what do you think my first response would be? What do you mean by that? <laughs> Are you asking me, whether an all-powerful, all-loving, sovereign God, how do you make sense of evil existing in the world? That sounds like a contradiction. Or are you asking, why did God allow evil in the world? They're two different questions, okay? When I said, I don't know, I was largely responding to the why question. Most of the questions that start out, why did God or why didn't God, can't be answered with any certainty. And the reason they can't be answered is because they pertain to what's in the mind of God regarding that issue. And much of the time, God hasn't told us what was in his mind regarding that issue. Okay, and so this is a little, maybe a tutorial for you regarding that kind of question. People think, for some reason, that if they ask a question about what was in God's mind and you can't answer it, that this somehow is evidence against God. But just because we don't know why God did something doesn't mean he didn't do it. It's irrelevant to that. It might be interesting to know his thinking, and on some of these issues, there has been detail given that is somewhat speculative by Christian thinkers on why God would allow evil. I do some of that uh, in the story of reality on the problem of evil. I devote quite a bit of space to it, though. Partly I'm trying to show that there is no contradiction on the Christian worldview. There's no contradiction between God's goodness and his power in the existence of evil. If God had a good moral reason to allow, a morally sufficient reason to allow evil for a season, then there's no contradiction with his power and his goodness. All right? My daughter hates shots, but I do the evil of dragging her to the doctor where he can stick her with that painful needle because there's a greater good in view. All right? And so I'm justifying and allowing the evil in my daughter's life for a time 
because there's a greater good that is going to come of it. My daughter doesn't understand the greater good or didn't when she was younger, but by parallel, why isn't it plausible that God allows evil for a greater good? Many of us who have walked with the Lord for a while through thick and through thin and through hardship, we can look back in our lives and we can see how the evil that assailed us sometime in the past was used by God for something good in the future, okay? So it seems to me that is certainly plausible as an answer. And I think the reason he might allow it is because he forms certain things in our character that we would not have by way of virtue that we have for eternity that we could not have if there was no evil in the world. You can't have developed the virtue of long-suffering unless there's suffering. Long-suffering. You can't develop the virtue of forgiveness unless there's something to forgive, just to give two kind of handy examples. Now, somebody might say, well, pff, there seems to be a whole lot of bad stuff that happens to people in the world that I can't even imagine could produce something good enough to justify that. And my answer is, you're right. You probably can't imagine it. But just because you can't imagine it doesn't mean it isn't there. Who do you think is in the best position to know whether the suffering that is allowed is adequate, is commensurate with a good that comes out of it sometime in the future? Yeah, not us, God. Not us, God. And so I'm real happy to leave it with him since the problem of evil is part of our story, it doesn't create any problems for me as far as God's power and his goodness. And it's, it's quite likely God had a good reason for allowing it, a morally good reason. And we've had a lot of experience to see incidents like that in our lives. So what I know allows me to trust God for what I don't know. Thank you. Shall we move to another question? So we've got some questions on the board, but if you feel like you wish to flag down one of our microphones. Here's our next question. Where does the Bible outline Christian environmentalism? Yes, I'll take that one since I kind of talked about it. There's several places in the Bible where uh, he gives us guidelines for how we treat the environment, but perhaps the first one you can go is Genesis 1.28, the cultural mandate where after God created man and woman, he, he said, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea of the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves upon the earth. That's called the cultural mandate where man is given dominion or rulership over God's creation, not as one that exploits it, but as a caretaker over God's creation. Genesis 2, uh, verse 18, he says, place man in the garden to care for the garden. That means to be a steward over what God has created. And so we're, we don't, the pantheists worship creation, okay, and we're an ant, a fly has the same value as a human being. Not in the Christian worldview, okay, the Christian worldview, man has rulership and dominion over the creation. He's to care for the creation and use it to better to advance, you know, technology to advance and enhance human life, but not, but as a caretaker, not to destroy or exploit 
the creation. So that's the cultural mandate. Then you have other passages like uh, in the book of Job, I think verse 23 says that everything in the earth belongs to God. All right, so everything belongs to God and we're simply stewards, caretakers of his creation and we value the creation because God values it and we are stewards of it. And in passages like Leviticus 25, it talks about giving the land a Sabbath rest. So on the seventh year, you to give rest from harvest, you know, to allow it to replenish itself. And so there's several passages like that about how we're to care for the earth around us. But it all begins in Genesis 1 verse 28, the cultural mandate where we're given dominion to care and steward carefully over what God has created. Can I add to that? Yeah. Wonderful. And correct? Yeah. Uh, there's also Psalm 8 where uh, David is just kind of overflowing with wonder at the role that God has given man over creation. He's placed all, what is man that you even think of him? He said, but you've made him ruler over everything. You've placed all things under his feet. Part of the problem with the question here is the word environment, environmentalism, because that actually is a worldview-laden term. Environmentalism now means some very particular view of the environment and how one cares for it that ties in more with nature worship than it is putting the environment in its proper place. And so what Pat is offering is kind of a Christian view of environmentalism. That isn't trying to baptize their view with our Bible verses. It's to give a different view of the role of human beings to the environment that's consistent with the way God set it up. So we are to use but not abuse. On environmentalism in general, human beings are the plague on the planet, you know? And it's like getting back to the way it was before human beings messed it up. It is interesting, by the way, in that world, in that response, they still treat human beings as different, right? They treat them as different, which Human beings ought to just be all part of the environment, doing its own thing. But in the Christian view, in the biblical view, man is in charge. He is to be steward over the environment for his own benefit. Not to abuse it, but to use it for his benefit. So it is anthropocentric and not nature-centered. Environmentalism now is nature-centered and man is the problem. But the Christian view is that man is, is in charge. Now, he abuses that, obviously. But I just wanted to point out that it's a very different understanding of environmentalism from the secular viewpoint and the Christian viewpoint. I think this is Pat's point earlier, too, that we are to approach these things and invest these issues uh, with biblical content. Very good. All things have been created through him and for him, Colossians 1.16. Our next question, please. If the Christian worldview is the only true view with compelling evidence, what is keeping these unbelievers from embracing Christianity? Why is it so hard for them to see clearly? I'm going to key in on the last sentence. Why is it so hard for them to see clearly? is a very obvious reason, or very a straightforward reason that's given multiple times in the Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says that Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever, so they will not see 
the glory of Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, it says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In 2 Timothy, the end of chapter 2, you see another statement that, he, that the world is held captive by the devil to do his will, which is why they can't come to their senses and see the truth of the gospel. And then in Revelations chapter 12, I think verse 9, you have another statement about the devil deceiving the entire world. Ephesians 6 talks about schemes of the devil that Christians are supposed to be aware of and stand firm against using their full spiritual armor. There are machinations or strategies that the devil has in place that he accomplishes by blinding people from the truth. He is a liar from the beginning. He speaks lies from his own nature. The most pervasive element of spiritual warfare is, is deception regarding the truth, which is why apologetics turns out to be one of the most important features of combat against the devil. The reason the world can't see what there is every good reason to see is because they have been blinded by the enemy. Read Ephesians 6. It's spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Forces of darkness that are keeping people from seeing. Now, they got their own fallenness that's contributing to it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that the human beings did not love the truth, so they were easily deceived, essentially. But those are all big liabilities that we're facing, which is why we need the Holy Spirit to make a difference, backing up the good arguments that we offer. Very good. Should we take one more question? Maybe Pat can uh, have a okay. shot at it. In regards to question one, would the problem be with the fact that we, as Christians, are to blame for not standing strong in sharing our world through worldview through evangelism? Certainly, you know, as Christians, you know, we share some of that burden where we have not clearly articulated our position or as Peter says, you know, always be prepared to give an answer or a reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and reverence. And certainly there have been times where Christians, you know, we have not been prepared to give a good answer and we do a disservice when there are those who are honestly asking. I mean, they're honestly seeking, asking good questions. We need to provide good reasons and evidence and answers for the questions that they're asking. Also, Peter says to do this with gentleness and respect. Uh, some of your translations read reverence. That's the same reverence we showed towards God. Yes, yeah, sometimes we don't do it with the right spirit, with gentleness and with reverence. Certainly when I first became a Christian, uh, I was pretty combative and things like that, and I didn't present uh, my case well and, and, and turned a lot of people off. Also, I didn't understand you know, the Christian worldview and how it applies and how I can present Christian truth in all kinds of different arenas, whether it's in the political field, it's talking about economics, talking about science, talking about philosophy, talking about religious truth. And so I wasn't prepared, nor did I understand the Christian worldview. And once you understand that, there's all kinds of avenues now from which you can bring in God's truth that leads to avenues to share the gospel, right? When I was a white belt in jiu-jitsu, my uh, instructor would always yell at me. They would say, you're too one-dimensional. You're too one-dimensional. I can see exactly what you're doing because I only had one move, right? 
But once I developed five, six, seven, eight different moves, now I had all kinds of different angles which I could attack. And when you understand the Christian worldview, there's all kind of avenues, whether it's movies or talking about the environment or talking about government where you can bring in the gospel. So part of that is, yeah, we haven't been as prepared as we should be, but that's why we have conferences like this. So he was really hard and rough when he first became a Christian, and now he's really nice and gentle and just uses <laughs> jujitsu on people. <laughs> That's great. Do we want to take one more? Or we, and it, what do you say, Pat? One more? Sure, one more. One yeah. more? And all the God's people said amen. Okay, so scientific naturalism has dominated the paradigms of many people. How does one raise the God creation part of the Christian story? without getting caught up in the debate of old earth versus young earth evolution, especially who were the first Adam and Eve in a long line of evolving primates. Yeah, well, you know, I, I uh, get this question a lot with young people. When you're in the arena, you know, of unbelievers, you don't need to argue about the age of the earth. That's, that's really between, you know, us Christians. It's sad that that has been a dividing point even amongst, you know, Christians. But uh, you don't have to argue the age of the earth. You simply have to demonstrate the flaws of Darwin's system. And there are some serious flaws there. It's got no mechanism for change. You know, the fossil record doesn't support it. You're missing all the transitional forms. You have not answered the question of how life came from non-life. I mean, there's a whole series of flaws that show you the argument doesn't work. I mean, the theory doesn't work. If you just point those out, you've done a tremendous job. And then if you can show intelligent design or a creator, you know, best explains the apparent design we see in things like DNA and the human brain, the human anatomy, the, the uh, universe around us. That's all you have to do, okay? You don't have to prove the age of the earth or Adam and Eve. That's uh, really, you know setting the bar way too high, as Greg was kind of sharing tonight. All you got to do is show it's, re it's more reasonable, you know, that intelligent creators to account for the creation we see around us. And that there's serious flaws in Darwin's uh, theory here. Yeah, you can also do uh, another end around and just avoid all of the detail about evolution entirely, because though evolution is a part of the materialistic worldview, there's a whole bunch more that's part of materialism that doesn't deal with evolution. Remember, materialism is the view that, as I was saying earlier, it's meat all the way down. The only thing that is real are molecules in motion governed by natural law, all right? If you can show that there is something beyond the material realm, you've defeated materialism, okay? And consciousness is a simple example, by the way. Mm -hmm. Consciousness is your awareness of yourself. It's the soul's awareness of itself. It's not awareness of your body. You may be aware of your body, but consciousness isn't awareness of the body. It's an awareness of the self, an awareness of the contents of your mind, like your thoughts and your beliefs and your intentions and your acts of will and your sensations. These are all part of your consciousness. Notice, by the way, nothing that I just mentioned has any physical quality. Your intentions, your acts of will, your, your desires, none of these extend in space. Your thoughts don't have weight. They're not governed by the laws of physics. 
And because consciousness is such a problem, one famous atheist, Daniel Dennett, has, along with the many others now, have simply denied consciousness completely. It doesn't fit in their worldview box, so they say it doesn't exist. Consciousness, they say, is an illusion. Huh? That's how far they have to go to maintain materialism. So there's just a little, there's a huge chink in the armor with one little step. If consciousness is real and not an illusion, then materialism is false. Okay, that's why they're trying to just disregard consciousness. So here's the deal, very easy to respond to. Series of questions, what is an illusion? Answer, an illusion is when your consciousness is being appeared to in a false way. Things that don't have consciousness don't have illusions, right? But if consciousness is an illusion, then what is having that illusion? Is an illusion having an illusion? Having an illusion, having an illusion. You see how it just, it's ridiculous. It's self-refuting. Just consciousness all by itself, something that everyone is aware of and has access to immediately, is demonstration that materialism is false. And there are a lot of things like that you can point at. Wonderful. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you are interested in having Pat speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps holding an apologetics conference, please give him a call locally in Hawaii. It's 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles, additional audio for you to listen to or download, as well as Pat's books. So be sure and share our website with your family, friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Let's